That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. The, we the do intro great is brilliant. I mean, the intro is very good, yeah. The rest of it falls off a cliff right after that. And do you right. get many listeners? No. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hi, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How you doing, buddy? Doing well. Also joining us today in the studio is our very special guest, again, Nick Wheeler. Nick, thanks for being back. We had so much great conversation uh, last time we decided to use the rest of the material in this week's episode. So we appreciate you being here. Welcome, Nick. I, I disagree with your use of rest of the material. That makes it sound like you put all of the good stuff in podcast episode one. Uh, and, and now we're just like the leftovers. I, I, I dissent from that view. This, this is, this material is some of the best material that we have. This is great material. We're going to, we're going to talk about IR theory. We're going to finally learn what the English school is, which has been bothering me since I, uh, since I was a PhD student. So now you talk about this all the time. You're like, if somebody could just explain to me <laughs> what this could is just all about. Tell me, right. So, um, we're very glad to have you back, Nick. Yeah. It's wonderful to be here, to be part of this podcast with you both. Nick, can you explain the English school to us? <laughs> yeah, I can try. Um, so, well, that's okay. So the way I explain it to my students is that um, the way to understand the English school is basically encapsulated brilliantly in the title of Hedley Ball's 1977 book, The Anarchical Society, which whilst we're on personal autobiography, <laughs> I read before I became an undergraduate student. <laughs> <laughs> because it was one of the core books for the LSE's uh, reading list. I didn't go to the LSE, but uh, it was on my list of, uh, of departments. And um, I read it uh, one summer. And I can't say I properly understood it as a <laughs> pre-undergraduate student for a moment, but I certainly was realised there was something very important here. Um, so the anarchical society is fundamentally what the English school is interested in uh, studying, which is the idea that even though the international system is anarchic, it can still contain within it an element of international society. Now, where people misunderstand the school often is that they think that the, that the sort of the key members of the English school historically, uh, that they think that, that they saw international society and international relations as synonymous, and they didn't. They saw international society as intervening into international relations, but they saw it as coexisting with two other fundamental elements, the element of power politics and realism and, you know, the Hobbesian state of war, if you want, on the one end. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the idea of transnational solidarities between the sort of emergent community of humankind, whether that was represented through the, the kind of the Marxist vision of a classless society or whether it was represented through um, the notion that you would, you know, you would create some universal order in the name of a particular religion and so on. But these transnational forces, uh, what Martin White, you know, one of the most famous figures in the English school called, called the revolutionist approach was all about sweeping away the society of states and, and getting rid of it and replacing it with a universal community of humankind, whether by the sword or whether that would emerge through peaceful processes. And then the society of states also wasn't reducible, though, but found itself in constant tension and competition 
with this element of con- conflict and power politics and the tension between power and morality. And so international society becomes this kind of via media, this, uh, this, this attempt to create a middle of the road, if you want, between you know, this realism on the one hand and this universalism on the other. And, and so the, the English school emerged as a way of trying to give analytical rigor, historical depth and sociological, a sort of sociological structuring, really, of this idea of international society. So some in the school were drawn more to the social scientific approach, like Ball, in order to then champion the classical approach, but were prepared to kind of engage with it. Others like White felt you shouldn't have anything to do with it. This behavioural revolution stuff was all, you know, Headley, don't, why are you bothering with that? And Ball would, would reply, it's important for me to engage Kaplan because he's doing something interesting, but we need to also assert the values of the classical approach of, of history, of judgment, of, and the, kind of the idea of the virtues of statecraft and so on. Um, and White, he didn't want anything to do with the behavioural stuff. But he was very interested in trying to understand international society in kind of historical and sociological depth. So he wanted to look at past international societies, so like the Greek city-state system, and try to look for recurring patterns of institutions. And, and you know, at the heart of that was White's notion that an international society presupposed a common cultural base. And they had this big interest in what happens with decolonization, what happens to international society when it goes global. And so, and so a lot of the critics today of post-colonialism and um, the, the work that comes kind of out of that sort of tradition more broadly and the decolonizing kind of approach that's very prominent in my more non-American sort of international relations theorizing in the UK and Europe and Australia and so on, Canada, there's, there's, there's sort of more engagement with that than I think in the US, although clearly there's some engagement in the US in certain quarters, very important engagement. But that whole kind of post-colonial critique of international society and this idea of a kind of um, Eurocentric is, is, I think, kind of uh, comes out of that English school engagement with this question of decolonization and how we can understand it. And actually, I think some of the criticisms are misplaced on that, but that's for maybe another conversation. So, um, yeah, does that explain it? Jeff, I have a question. How many um, English school articles or books did you read in graduate school? I think that would be none. None. Yeah. Jeff and I have talked about – we've talked about this too, about how the English school in the U.S. just for whatever reason never never really took off. I mean maybe maybe uh, in some programs, but I think what happened is in the 1990s, you know, sort of before I, I went to graduate school, constructivism in the U.S. sense, you know, sort of the Wentian, mm. the Hopf, you know, that, that sort of became the sort of – if you're going to talk about international relations from like an ideational or a norms perspective, right. that's, that's where you went. It kind of superseded – it's super, or like, in some like ways, stepped in where the English school would have been in our education here. Right. And I, and I wonder yeah. – and I, I, I'm, both of you would be, I'd be curious to get your takes on this. I wonder if that sort of emphasis on constructivism was based partially on sort of a methodological – because at least with U.S. constructivism, they were pitching it in any sort of broadly positivist – I mean this is what Alex was trying to do. Was yeah. Constructivism, make it for positivists. You know, you can sort of see – Okay, I have this ideational understanding of the world, but I can speak in languages of a language of variables and causality and and sort of mainstream rationalists might not agree with the theoretical approach, but they could at least understand what was going on because there was a shared epistemology and, and methodology to a large extent. Whereas the English school, I think, you know, might be a little bit less uh, some of the arguments anyway, a little less likely to, to be sort of causal 
in nature, identifying independent and dependent variables, operationalization became less of a, you know, sort of an exercise that would be, you know, sort of a privileged part of the process. So I, I wonder if it was just a methodological kind of thing that led to U.S. graduate programs in particular adopting the sort of U.S. version of constructivism over the English school, because there is a lot of overlap. And there, it's interesting that, you know, the English school just did not sort of penetrate you know, the market, so to speak, as much as the U.S. constructivists did. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant point. And I think methodologically the English school is very eclectic. So you have some people in it who so, – so I think it's important to distinguish between different waves of the English school. So, you know, the, the, the prominent kind of founding figures in the English school were Martin White, a Christian pacifist who wrestled – with the tensions between power and morality and tried to find a kind of meeting ground through this idea of international society, but who was always troubled by, by the sort of um, the compromises and the ambiguities and the, the kind of dirty hands problem, if you want, of power. And then the other kind of great sort of pioneering figure uh, who people that have kind of read him and were influenced by him think that he's such a you know an amazingly important figure and I, I would probably support that, although he's not the figure that's been my sort of as much of a strong reference point for me, although I keep thinking I should go back to him more, um, is Charles Manning. And he was professor at the LSE and set the de- and was a major figure in the department there and was very committed to building up international relations. And of course it's it's a it's an odd uh, term the English school because most of the people in it weren't English Um, you know Manning you know wasn't English he was South African and Manning is a very important figure a lot of people trained by Manning went on to be very important figures in the field and continued to develop so big imprint and he did have a commitment to kind of to thinking about international relations as a separate discipline he was he was trained in international law but but again you know probably his most famous book is called The Nature of International Society. But I could just imagine trying to steer a proposal based on that book through one of your thesis committees. You know, I mean, methodologically, what is this book? But I mean, it's rooted in an interpretivist approach to social science, but it's not explicit about that. But it's very much interested in the kind of Weberian sort of categories of Verstehen and so on, and very much kind of Manning in many ways. That book would very much be um, a book that would sit very comfortably with Alex's social theory of international politics and anarchy is what states make of it in terms of the way of understanding international society. So I use this example in my book, Saving Strangers, because I think it's a lovely example. Manning explains international society like Father Christmas, that we all participate in the intersubjective understandings that makes Father Christmas possible. And so it's very kind of, so there is that. And my colleague and former colleague, Aberystwyth and very good friend and co-author for many, many years, Tim Dunn, he wrote an article in 1996, very influenced by the Wentian work, on the argument that the English school could be seen as proto-constructivist and that social constructivism was at the heart of a lot of English school thinking. So I think maybe the problem is that the method was never made explicit and so perhaps it was less attractive in U.S. graduate schools where you were looking for methodologically rich, you know, books like Theory of International Politics. Because interestingly, you know, I don't think too many U.S. 
graduate schools do much with Man, the State and War, do they? Which I think is probably Waltz's best book, interestingly. But again, because perhaps that book is more like kind of the anarchical society and maybe even, you know, in that sense, where there's theory of international politics, you know, it's such a rigorous book and you can really kind of train a student in method by engaging that book. So I think there's a lot in that. But I also think the English school is really important because it alerts us to the idea that cooperation under anarchy isn't as hard as some people think it is in the US debate. So in the US debate, there's kind of this idea that, and this was what kind of really got me very interested in it. So I was, you know, I was engaging Jervis and Ball at the same time as a student. And I was thinking about how can society then, the concept of society, help us to think about mitigating the security dilemma? And Jervis, one of the really interesting things about Jervis's work is that he does recognize the importance of shared values uh, the importance of common interests, the importance that in the end, if cooperation is going to be sustained, it's going to have to have these shared bonds. He has some really interesting language about bonds, even in Perception and Misperception in 76. He says, you know, the security dilemma can't be escaped, but it can be ameliorated. And he has this language of shared bonds. And then later on, in a really lovely article in 88 called Realism, Game Theory and Cooperation, he has a really nice conclusion where he says, well, we don't, most of us don't behave like the prisoner's dilemma actually in society. And, you know, what's really interesting is that if we really want cooperation to last, we have to get beyond that rationalist kind of way of thinking about cooperation and we have to think about shared bonds, shared values. And, and so he kind of, he recognises that and that maps him really closely onto the English school. So I think, the, you know, and yet it's really interesting, someone told me a long time ago that they'd gone to see Jervis to work with him, um, a British scholar, and that Jervis had been in his office and he'd met him for the first time. And, and Jervis was very supportive to this person and so, and he, he worked with Jervis for a year there, I think. And um, But Jervis was telling him why the anarchical society was just not a good book. <laughs> <laughs> not because it wasn't a really interesting book, I think, but because I guess it just didn't have that methodological rigour that Jervis was looking for. And I kind of found that story really interesting. And I have a personal story as well. Someone very senior in the field, who I won't name, told me that they really, really liked Saving Strangers and that they'd really enjoyed it. And this was in the context of a conference in humanitarian intervention. Someone very senior in the US, this was. Uh, very, very established scholar. Uh, but that, you know, but it wasn't testable social science. <laughs> But then they really liked the book. <laughs> but it wasn't social science. And, of course, I stupidly said, but, but why is it not social science? And they said, because there's nothing in it that's testable. <laughs> like the dagger to the heart. I've been, li- I've been living with that one. I've been living with that one for a long time. But to be fair, Nick, I mean, we've, we've brought you along, you know, yeah. to the American way of thinking. Yeah. I mean, you now, you now know what an independent variable is and, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I've learned it. It's actually very true. I've become much more – I mean, the, the big – we do a lot better now in British graduate schools with methods training than we ever did when I was a student and a PhD student. So it has changed. But I think if there's an area where a lot of British PhDs in IR and certainly – uh, academics uh, are weak, you know, or weaker, shall we say, not weak, but are, are maybe weaker than their US counterparts, is on methods. And 
So whilst I think we have a broader, maybe, range of disciplinary areas that we look at and perhaps have the, the, the net more extended in terms of the theoretical range in the field, which is so diverse now, nevertheless, I think methods remains an area where there's a real challenge for less so maybe for the generation that's coming through, you know, the, the kind of the people that are now in their kind of 30s and coming through. But, but even so, I think even there too. But certainly for people like me, you know, in, in that generation, the uh, sort of, um, you know, I think methods was something that was never really taken. But, but, in, but, but, but one big factor in that has been the re, the re, the, what we call the REF, the Research Excellence Framework, which is, you know, the way in which our work is measured through peer review, but as part of a government process of funding in the universities and deciding on the quality of research across all subjects. And rigor is now one of the, and has been for a, a fair while now, like sort of over, over 15 years or so. So our work is measured in terms of significance and rigor is a really important part of that. So the quality of the work in terms of the academic contribution of the work uh, is now judged in the context of the methodological rigor and the significance of the contribution to the field. And Nick, just a, one last question. Does that, um, the, the rigor part, does that concern you at all? I mean, you know, Stephen Walt has that famous, what is it IS article, like rigor or rigor mortis, where he's, you know, he's lamenting, I don't know when that article was written in the 80s, 90s, a long time ago, yeah. about the move for political scientists, particularly in the U.S., to study international relations to be much more quantitative, uh, you know, sophisticated in terms of, of methods and, and rigorous. Yeah. So he's, he's, you know, 30 years ago, uh, lamenting the, the direction that we're going in. And it sounds like the U.K. now is moving in that direction just a little bit later than the U.S. did. Yeah, the, the criterion I couldn't come up with just now is originality. That's the one I'm after. Originality, significance, and rigor are the three criteria by which the the work is assessed by the peer review ref panels. Um, and it's internally assessed as well as part of that whole process. Anyway, um, yeah, and of course he wrote the article with Mearsheimer about, you know, the importance of not getting too much obsession with testable social science hypotheses. Right. And the importance of, you know, grand theory and not getting kind of caught up too much in sort of middle ground theory and where we are, you know, t testing things that aren't particularly interesting. So, and, and you know, and, you, and, you, and I think you could argue that in both of their big, you know, you know certainly that commitment to grand theory, shape, I mean, certainly Mearsheimer's work has that kind of commitment to grand theory. There isn't, there isn't testable hypotheses in a sense that they're set up against alternative rivals and you know you're given a set of assumptions about the social world told that this is the way the world operates and then the argument is laid out for why we must be seeing what we're seeing the observations are explained by the theory there are anomalies as he told me you don't need to have you know you can have some anomalies within the theory and it's not a problem right how many anomalies was never clear to me, though, <laughs> before one has to abandon the theory. <laughs> but, you know. We all, have we all have anomalies. It's not like it's not like gravity where you drop the thing, it doesn't fall, you've disproven gravity, right? I mean, we, we probabilistic theories. But Marcus and I would have a bad time of it if someone was turned up evidence that Reagan and Gorbachev actually didn't trust one another at all and that they were just using, you know, 
cheap talk with one another and that in the end, you know, they were risk calculating one another. I'd have a real hard time with my chapter six. That would have to be jettisoned from trusting enemies as a case study of the theory. But, but that's not your theory. That, that's the that's a piece, key piece of evidence for your theory. Yeah. But, but if, I, if I offer you Putin and Putin doesn't fit in your theory, that doesn't mean your theory is wrong. No, 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 no. But, but what I mean is that that's a, such a powerful case for my theory – that, and I've set it up out there and right. said – It would be a shame to get that one wrong. Yeah, that was your- yeah because that's the best one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Yeah. So, so – but what I mean is by that is that we've created clear empirical markers right. by which our work can be judged. And I don't think that's necessarily the case with some of the grand theory. So I think you could say – Completely agree there. You could say that, you know, I think the movement to – to rigor in that sense is really important. And I, I, I mean, and personally, I've learned an enormous amount and my work has been massively shaped in that way, thinking about this through the engagement with Marcus. And that's been one of the great things about the partnership, I think, is that we've been able to bring things from our different training to bear on our collective projects. And that's been, been really great. So, but if I could have my time over again, um, in this context, I would definitely want to do more methods training as a younger scholar. I wish that that had been part of my PhD training uh, because I think it would have given me a much greater insight into kind of what I was trying to do at a younger age. Um, so I would all, I always encourage my own students to get as methodologically rigorous as they can and also to be open to engaging. You know, I think, you know, Cohane said... Uh, in a couple of places, I think, you know, that good social science research is always kind of puzzle-driven. And I think that's the way to think about it. And then the question is, this is my puzzle. Which theories are out there that help me to think about it? And let's be open, you know, whatever those theories are, let's bring them to the table and have a conversation. The problem I have at the moment is that I'm not sure how you begin to have a conversation around that. And that's where it becomes difficult to kind of think about what the what – I find it increasingly hard to think that all of us in this field of inquiry globally belong to something called international relations as a discipline because our epistemological and ontological starting points are so radically different. And in particular, you know, the, the, the assumption that I think the three of us would all be comfortable with as a starting assumption and the anarchy assumption is one that is heavily contested across the discipline globally. So, you know, a lot of people would just don't want to start here. You know, if you read, if you think, if, you, if we had Robert Vitalis with us, you know, White World Order, Black Power Politics, you know, great book, very, very interesting, really interesting contribution. But I think he, it would be such a different engagement with where we, what we've discussed today. And that's really intriguing. And of course, the other big thing in that is the origin story itself. So, of course, I'm an Aberystwyth person. And, you know, I always think of the discipline as starting in Aberystwyth. Uh, you know, and I, I, you know, I told that story for many, many years, you know, uh, on open days to parents. And I, you know, I, that I kind of could wake up in the night in my sleep and tell that story uh, about how the discipline began and what the vision was and all of that. And it's very close to my heart, you know, that, 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 that vision. But if you asked Vitalis and others, you know, they'll tell you that the story is very, very different, that it begins in race, mm-hmm. imperialism, empire, slavery. It doesn't, it doesn't begin in, you know, the trenches of 1914 and the vision of a new world order. You know, in fact, you know, 
Woodrow Wilson, whose name endowed the first chair at Aberystwyth, of course, is seen as a fundamental part of the problem yep. uh, of, of, of the origins of international relations in terms of his own you know, racist policies and so on. So it becomes very interesting in 2024 to try to reflect upon kind of where we've come from and what this discipline really looks like. And is that important? I guess the question I want to ask you two guys by way of conclusion, by way of conclusion this part of the conversation, is, is kind of, is that important? Do we need to have a strong sense of a disciplinary or is it fine for, you know, a thousand flowers to bloom? Jeff, you want to tackle that or you want me to? Yeah, we let a, let a thousand flowers bloom. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's important that we have that common sense of the pillars of the international system because this is a, a well in, in in my world this is social science we someone propose a theory let's go test it if if your if your theory is right and the evidence bears it out then i'm glad you offered that starting point that can change my opinion of how the world works okay but even in just in that statement you said test it mm -hmm. right so i <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna lay down a methodological marker and say that my version of international relations is a positivist version of international okay, relations so it's a thousand flowers are blooming within a particular garden <laughs> that we're gonna have a, a little gate around i'm cutting all this <laughs> how, how 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 do you test the origin how do you test the origins debate I mean, I don't know, but that's not, I mean, that's not my job. That's uh, whoever's offering a, a theory about the origins of the international system. But they're system. not really offering a theory, are they? They're offering a theory about... But if they're not offering a theory, then they're not in my, in my garden, right? So, so here's how I want to lay this out, right? I want to say that I don't care what your, whether you believe in anarchy or hierarchy or uh, international society, right? But I do have a, an, I have trouble engaging with a non-positivist approach to these questions. But that, now, but that narrows you down to about 25% of the discipline in the, in the world. Right. Maybe, well, maybe 50. Sorry, guys. Yeah, I mean... It, but, it, but that's a real problem, right? Because that approach is, is, is not universally shared. So I could, I could wheel right. out the names of academics in the UK in all the top chairs in Cambridge, Oxford, right across the UK in all the top departments, and none of them would be positivists. Yeah, I know. Not one of them. I mean, but that... Not one of them. <laughs> and then we could start in Australia, and we'd find a few more there, but not many. I mean, you'll find them here. Yeah. In droves. <laughs> but it's a bit like, you know... Um, but I don't know what to talk about with those people. Yeah, no, it's we, a great we have, no, we have no common language. Well, the, the, I don't even know how to... That's, that's, that's exactly right. Take in that's my that point, kind of right? A, uh, yeah. That's my point. The discipline has become like an encounter with the Martians. Right. For you to sit down with... I can barely handle Marcus. A post-colonial <laughs> scholar, you know. So, 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 you know, I mean, putting this concretely, right? For you to sit down with, you know, with, 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 with people writing in, in, in terms of, you know, post-colonialism uh, and have a conversation about Ukraine would be... I mean, that I think is really interesting. But I also think that when you start to think about what that conversation looks like, it becomes very difficult because in the end you're starting from such radically different assumptions. But like, but, but it is interesting because like the West Plaining thing, I, I read a really good article in international affairs, which I assigned to the students where the two authors were applying post-colonial theory to uh, East central Europe and arguing that a lot of the decolonizing 
dynamics and colonial production of production of colonial practices was at work in the East Central European situation, and that and that actually, you know, in thinking about liberating Ukraine and and thinking about Ukraine finding its agency and its identity, there was a lot to be learnt from post-colonialism. But we didn't mention that today when we talked about Ukraine. So is that another theory? Is that another one to think about? Uh, and then, see, the, the problem I have is the one that I've had all my academic life, really, is that at some level, are we talking about fundamentally different worlds that just aren't radically commensurable? The kind of the, Mar- the Martian question. Or is that actually giving us the Olympian perspective by bringing all these theories together in some way? So do I get a better view of the world if I pull them all together? But then what does that look like in policy terms? So you go to Joe Biden and you say, well, look, we've got 12 theories for this Ukraine conflict. What do you want? The security dilemma? <laughs> That's right. Gender? Well, that was my initial point, right? I decolonization, mean, yeah. structural realism, offensive realism, defensive realism, liberal internationalism, liberal institutionalism. Um, so, Joe, what do you think? We've <laughs> yeah. got nine theories. What should we do? Send them the F-16s or not? <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> But I'm kind of being slightly, uh, but I'm, but I'm also, I think, trying to push you guys into. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, a, I think it's an issue. I think, I think, to be fair to Jeff, I mean, my my feeling is what Jeff would say in a situation where somebody came to William and Mary and presented something from this different world, right, Martian encounter. My sense is Jeff would would listen and and understand and be open to being convinced but the the problem is for for it to count as knowledge for jeff like his epistemological position is i need this to be scientific to convince me that, mm-hmm. that what you're saying is right mm-hmm. and so it's it's not so much being like an unwillingness or a or a sort of like a lack of a, a desire to learn or hear about other people's perspectives it's just more about like how do i know what counts as knowledge mm-hmm. creation mm-hmm. versus that's an interesting story or that's an interesting take but I, I, your bar, Jeff, I think for for knowledge is at that sort of positive scientific level, and you need evidence, and you need to show causality, and your causal inferences must be sound. And if I can poke holes in it, and I can, you know, show you that actually your whole thing is endogenous or whatever, like yeah, that, the, that's the rigor that there are lots of interesting ideas out there on Twitter, man. You go, you start scrolling, you'll see a lot of things. Does does that make it knowledge that I should incorporate into my worldview? You got to show me some evidence. I need, I need to see. You know, I think that's a really nice way of putting it. Is is a, what is? Can you separate out knowledge from sort of subjective interpretation and a story and a narrative about the world? I mean, the the old way they used to talk about this is sort of understanding versus explanation. Mm. So he, he's looking for explanation. You're more comfortable with sort of an understanding type of, of approach, where it's more sort of interpretive, maybe introspective, saying we can't begin to understand. Or explain or predict why things happen in international relations. The very best we could try to do is come to some level of minute understanding of why the world works that the way it does because it's complicated. It's hard, and there's lots of confounding variables. and And so the the expl- explaining people are misguided because they think they can make things simple, and you really you can't. And so you're embracing a more sort of, um, you know, the idea of letting a thousand, thousand flowers bloom is based on this premise that. We don't know which of the gardens or which of the types of flowers are the correct ones. And so, therefore, we can't begin to make claims about which types of flowers we should be growing. I, yeah, you see, I, I don't think the post-positivists uh, – so I'm putting that broad category now, lumping everybody together. 
I don't think the post-positivists would say that they're not interested in knowledge. I think they would say they're interested in knowledge production, but they don't think knowledge production is possible outside of understanding the situatedness of the knowledge mm-hmm. exactly. producer. Yeah. And that in the end, the values, the histories, the narratives, are, you know, it's Cox's line, isn't it? All theory is always for someone right. and for some purpose. That's exactly what they would say. Yeah. But, I, but, but for me... And I think what you're yeah. saying is... Knowledge for him is different than knowledge right. for him. Yeah, and I think, what, I think what, what you're saying is that, 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 that there is knowledge that can be liberated from that situatedness of the observer, the idea that somehow all theory is conditional by, by uh, our values, our beliefs, our, our histories, our narratives, our purposes in Cox's sense. But, but you see, critical theorists would say that they, they definitely have a conception of knowledge yeah. and they definitely have a conception of how to judge between knowledge claims so they wouldn't say you can't judge between knowledge claims. Critical theorists would, I mean, it would depend a bit then whether we were going between. So if I was going, if we're going emancipatory critical theory, Frankfurt School kind of way, then they would say you can judge between knowledge claims. Of course, if we're going, I don't call this critical theory. If we're going then to post-structuralism or post-modernism, then of course we can't judge between knowledge claims. Then it is just subjective preferences. But of course you get that on the, with the liberals as well, with people like Rorty. So the pragmatists that can lead you to that kind of position. Pragmatism is an epistemology. But, of course, pragmatism doesn't always lead there. You can go with Dewey and Jane Addams, and you can go somewhere very different with pragmatism. Jason Ralph's just written a great book in the Cambridge series that I co-edit with Christian Rieschmidt and Evelyn Goh on applying pragmatism to international relations, looking at responsibility to protect. And so, again, that's an epistemological kind of position that goes off, we get the policies going off in very different directions. And of course, within the post-structuralist camp, you know, they can end up with very different positions on policy. So that's one of the intriguing things I always felt was that you can get the foundationalists and the anti-foundationalists in epistemological terms, but all agreeing that the right thing to do is to intervene in Bosnia. So then it's it's not about epistemology, clearly, in the, in that context. Right. So, Nick, I think we only have a few minutes left, but I want to—I don't want to let you go without asking you about nuclear responsibility. Ah. So, so you—you've been—you've <laughs> been working on this nuclear responsibility project for a while. Yeah. Um, can you tell us what is nuclear responsibility and, and tell us about the project and and what's come out of it? Okay, that's a, well, that's a great question, and I think we should do that for another podcast. But okay, <laughs> we'll have you back. But I'll, just I'll, the, the first I'll, part. I'll of try. So the first thing to say is that for me, the, the, the journey into nuclear responsibilities um, developed out of trying to think about the work I did on responsibility to protect and humanitarian intervention in the 90s, culminating in my, in my 2000 book, Saving Strangers. And what I became interested in as the, decade, as the next decade kind of wore on was whether this notion of responsibility in relation to one of the responsibilities of sovereignty in relation to human rights and humanitarian values, whether it might have application in the nuclear sphere. And I became interested in the question of on what basis might intervention take place to uh, prevent people from developing WMD and nuclear weapons after the Iraq war, of course. And the whole kind of debate with Eikenbury and Slaughter about, you know, the, the need not to worry about the Security Council, and you know, there was these discussions around the idea that there could be intervention 
the concept of democracies could intervene without UN authorization ultimately and these kind of debates. So there was a, an interest in trying to think about what kind of responsibilities then were attached to nuclear weapons. And then um, William Walker, a uh, very good friend and uh, colleague, wrote an article in 2010, I think it was, looking at the United Kingdom through its nuclear policies through the prism of this idea of what he called responsible nuclear sovereignty. And then this became a really interesting sort of jumping-off point for starting to think about this. So William and I wrote an article together. I had a research grant. And through that research grant, I started to work with the NGO I mentioned earlier, uh, BASIC. Uh, and in particular, uh, I worked uh, closely with the uh, then-director, Paul Ingram, uh, on this idea of trying to think about how we might operationalize these ideas of nuclear responsibility. And then Paul stood down and uh, as director and Sebastian Brixey williams uh, came in as co-director with Marion Mesmer. And Sebastian and I kind of started to really think about how to take this forward. And we, uh, BASIC and the uh, Institute for Conflict Cooperation and Security that I was director of at the time in Birmingham kind of came together. And we, we got a grant from the Counterproliferation and Arms Control Center in the Foreign Office to begin a pilot study uh, of states within the NPT to talk about this concept of uh, what what had become, Sebastian was the one, I think, who first used the term, uh, nuclear responsibilities. And so we decided that responsible nuclear sovereignty might be a concept that wouldn't necessarily be, uh, that would have too much association maybe with responsible, the responsibility to protect. Uh, and we were worried that it might, that might mean that um, states that were suspicious of the responsibility to protect were concerned that humanitarian intervention was being promoted uh, through the responsibility to protect in a way that was undermining of sovereignty. We, we decided responsible nuclear sovereignty might not be quite the right language to use to bring people into this process. We wanted to not give people the sense that this was a continuation of a kind of Western imperial agenda as it was perceived in some quarters in terms of the responsibility to protect. So we decided to soften the language and through conversations and some workshops, we came up with the idea, as I say, I think Sebastian coined the term and he and Paul Ingram wrote an article uh, where they then kind of developed this a bit uh, of nuclear responsibilities. So at the heart of the nuclear responsibilities concept is the idea that we need to think about our responsibilities in relation to nuclear weapons in terms of what are, our, what are our responsibilities and, crucially, who do we owe them to? So to try to widen the debate and get people to think, we call, we call, we call it critical introspection, trying to think about what our responsibilities are uh, and who they are to, and, crucially, to try to think about whether you, and this comes back to the security dilemma sensibility thing, so this was an important intellectual kind of, uh, for me, be, being part of this was trying to think about how to use this framing of nuclear responsibilities to get out of what was a bl- what has been a blame game in the nuclear order. So we were very interested in 2016, 2017, around how could you get out of the polarisation. So the review conference had failed to reach agreement in 15. There was no final communique uh, that was that was agreed. There was no consensus document. We were very interested in trying to think about how you could get out of this polarisation. 
And at the heart of what we were thinking about was that what was needed was a dialogical approach so that rather than imposing this idea of nuclear responsibilities on people by saying, you know, we, this, these are the responsibilities you should have in a normative sense, we wanted to get the actors themselves to talk about their responsibilities to one another and to negotiate those responsibilities and potentially to come up with new shared responsibilities and so we, the, the initial project that was funded brought together five states, the United Kingdom, uh, Japan, and the Netherlands as umbrella states, uh, and Brazil and Malaysia. So we wanted states within the nuclear order that reflected a variety of different viewpoints around what would become the Ban Treaty. So what we, So states that were open to a conversation uh, about nuclear responsibilities and wouldn't see it as simply legitimating Britain's nuclear position because, of course, one of the criticisms of the work has been you're funded by the British Foreign Office and really what your nuclear responsibilities argument is doing is legitimating Britain's continued possession. We were very keen to, to rebut that charge and to try to explore how nuclear responsibilities could promote disarmament and non-proliferation within the nuclear order, and by working with those five states. And essentially what I think we did with that first round of the project uh, was that we kind of did a sort of proof of concept, if you want. We got some important buy-in at the official level to the concept, so we had Track 1 participation. Uh, it was Track 1.5 event, uh, and then we had workshops in each of the five states and then culminating in a Track 1.5 event in London. And Sebastian and I wrote a report uh, on the basis of that um, which set out the concept and the approach. And then uh, this commitment to a dialogical process, we decided that what we needed to do was develop a toolkit, a, a sort of a, a toolkit for everything you need to know about nuclear responsibilities and we produced that toolkit with myself and Sebastian and uh, Alice Spillman, who's a policy fellow at BASIC and also a, currently a PhD student at Birmingham working on nuclear responsibilities. And um, I would sort of felt all along that the real test of the approach would be what it might be able to do in an adversarial relationship. And so I was keen that we would try to think about nuclear responsibilities, not only in the context of the wider MPT, which continued to work in that space through the Stockholm Initiative that BASIC was um, part of and, uh, and other initiatives and funding that I wasn't directly involved in but which Sebastian was leading on. And I, but I, I was keen in particular because of the work I was doing with Marcus because of my own work on the security dilemma that, and trust that we would try to think about nuclear responsibilities as a way of promoting security dilemma sensibility. It's actually getting the actors themselves to think about using the tool of SDS to, to break down the distrusting dynamics. And so it was quite natural, given you know, um, the risks of nuclear war, that we should focus on South Asia. So we put forward a, an application to the, to the funder to, to begin work on India, Pakistan, and that we had the pandemic. So we did a lot of that work virtually initially 
Um, and then we moved into actually holding dialogues with key policy influencers at the track two level uh, in uh, uh, India and Pakistan. And we've, for the last three years, we've been running a series of dialogues, bringing together some of the same people, but different people. I'm going to an, the next one in Dubai a week on Friday. Um where we try to explore the value of responsibilities and this approach to uh, opening up new spaces for cooperation and potentially trust through a third-party facilitated approach, building on classic kind of work of people like Herbert Kalman in the Israeli-Palestinian context and uh, before that, John Burton, using a sort of controlled communication approach aimed at moving the parties from an adversarial setting into a more collaborative one, creating a shared safe space for dialogue. And the idea is that they, that, um, that they can become champions of these ideas within their own communities, and we've seen a lot of success in that. Uh, and we're hoping to continue to su- secure funding and continue to do this work. So um, what makes it really attractive and, and important and exciting for me is that it's an opportunity to see whether uh, people can start to see themselves, going back to Abel Archer where Marcus was uh, a while back, whether people can do what Reagan did and start to see that they're holding these peaceful defensive self-images and that what they need to develop is security dilemma sensibility and to look for the spaces and the possibilities of that and potentially then to, div- to use that to focus on uh, new shared conceptions that can inform policy and practice. And the current work for the last two years has been focused on crisis management and crisis prevention. Sorry, it was a bit long, but hopefully that's given you... No, it's, it's a fantastic project and fantastic work, and, and I, I appreciate you telling us about it. And I think it's a, something for listeners to have on their radar um, as one way to apply all this theory we've been talking about to real problems in the world and, and try to make progress on these, on these really thorny issues. So thank you. Well, guys, I I think we should leave it there. We really covered a lot of material today. Um, I have a newfound understanding of what the what the English school is in international relations and uh, and kind of where it fits in. Nick, you really you really said it all. We covered a lot of territory today, a lot of ground, uh, and it's been it's been delightful, frankly. Yeah, thanks so much for for being with us, Nick. Thank you. It's been really great. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss and share and be part of this wonderful conversation. We'll be back, folks, next time. Sadly, just Marcus and I talking about what's new and exciting in the world. We've got uh, a space nuke from Russia is happening. Looks like a rough turn in the Russia-Ukraine war. So we'll we'll kind of get back to a couple of our current events questions. But it was really great to have you, Nick, as a, as a guest. And, and hopefully we'll have, have you back down the road. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to come back. It was great. And maybe Marcus will bring in some some new guests down the line. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really love sharing the spotlight, but I think uh, if we could find a good guest or two to this has been fun. I think it, it sort of you know it branches out from our normal kind of day to day podcast. So I like it. Well, I'd like to invite listeners to suggest someone we should talk to, or suggest an area that we should find someone to talk to. And if you're interested in hearing about something in particular. Um, we, we know some people, so we can we can maybe make that happen. So send us a note, cheaptalkpod at gmail.com. You can always leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. And of course, you can purchase a lovely Countries or People t-shirt from our store, cheaptalk.shop. Balloon hoodie. 
A balloon, yes. We'll have to explain to Nick what balloon hoodie is. A balloon corner hoodie. A balloon, that's yeah, right. balloon corner. Yeah, hoodie. Nick, we'll have to get you. We'll, as as a, a thank you gift for being on the pod today, we'll have to get you some some cheap talk merchandise that you can proudly wear. Thank you very much. Uh, around town. I mean, Nick Nick would agree countries are people, right? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. All right. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's, that's two. Okay, so two people agree. So we'll get you one of those uh, one of those great countries or people shirts that speaks to, speaks to that theory. Thanks so much, both of you. Thanks, everyone. We'll, we'll see you next week. That was great. I really enjoyed that. That was so much fun. Thanks so much, Nick. It was really uh, great. Uh, you really um, – Upped our level of content, I will say. Uh, I would. That's harsh. <laughs> no, that's harsh. The he's, problem he's Jeff's brilliant. gonna have. The problem Jeff's gonna have is he usually puts like show note like links to uh, either people that we talk about or articles. We mentioned probably fifty different you know articles and books. Yeah, it's a lot. Like five minutes with Nick is like more <laughs> citations than we've had in the entire history of the of the podcast. And I'm just gonna have to you know right. wave my hands at that one. Yeah.